0: Satan has is on double duty. Um, but we're going to get back into 1 Peter, if you want to join me there. Uh, last week, we talked a bit about the context of the book, got into really just a, an introduction of the book uh, written by the Apostle Peter about 30 years after Christ had risen from the dead. We talked about what it means to be an apostle. We talked about predestination. We talked about salvation. A lot of deep and very Meaty subjects, really good stuff, and it was, I really enjoyed uh, the things that God taught us in that. Uh, we talked a bit about the identity as pilgrims, and that we have a citizenship in heaven, if you remember that. And um, Peter starts off his book really calling out the identity of the church, really speaking directly to who we are in Christ, and what does that mean. And that's why the title of uh, this message, uh, at least what I've titled it, uh, is uh, Salvation the cause and effect, because it really has a practical effect in our lives. If we are saved, if we are Christians, that identity is inseparable from what our life looks like and how we live our life and what we say, how we say it. And so we talked a bit about that identity uh, in getting started last week. We managed to make it all the way through part of verse one. (laughs) So we're going to get a little farther this morning um, and... uh, you know, we, we even tackled a bit of the Calvinism versus Arminianism. Uh, and, you know, and, it's, and it's awesome to see how Scripture is so consistent uh, on, this, on these subjects. If, and I encourage you, I urge you to seek God's Word further because really, you know, as John wrote in Revelation in his conclusion, that, you know, should, were we to write everything that we could write about Jesus and His Word, there would be no end to the books we could write and read. And so. You know, we can't cover everything this morning. We can't cover everything on Sunday. Uh, you've got to keep studying on your own. I've got to keep studying on my own. We've got to open our Bibles ourselves. This is meant to just give you something to start with, to work with, to encourage you. Uh, but this is not going to do it. There is so much more. And so I want to encourage you. As we bring up these subjects, as we move along through here, understand we're just scratching the surface. And, and please do your own digging, because there's a lot to be found. There's a lot of treasure that awaits. So picking up where we left off, wrapping up verse 1, we're going to go ahead and see how Peter is going to get a little bit more into the results and benefits of being saved. Peter's going to share with us about the living hope we have in Christ and the great things that we have to look forward to. And he's also going to further expand on our security in Christ and the work he's continually intending to do in and through us. So let's go ahead and read uh, here in First Peter chapter 1, we're going to read through verse 9. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace and peace to you be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope, Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now, for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. That the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, Though it is tested by fire, it may be found to the praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having, not, whom having not seen you love, though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Wow, it's a lot there. And you almost just want to leave it at that. That's pretty darn good, so I'm just going to... No, it's, um, it is an, it's amazing how all of Scripture ties together, and there's so much we can pull out of this. So let's pray. Let's ask God's Spirit to be the teacher this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you for Peter and for how you used him, and Lord, for how you use us. We thank you for this letter that he wrote so long ago to encourage and exhort the young churches throughout the land. And Lord, it's still so relevant to us today. We still need the same reminders. You know that we still have the same weaknesses and tendencies. There's nothing new under the sun. We struggle the same ways. And so Lord, I thank you that your word is never irrelevant. It's never out of date. And it it speaks directly to our lives here and now. And I pray that you would speak to each heart here. Help us to receive from you. Help us to be humble before you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so let's... Start off here in verse 1, it says, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit, I'm sorry, verse 2, and for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace be multiplied. So we're going to try, go through this section and unpack it a little bit and see if we can pull apart the truth that is in here and what is being said so that we really can take it home. And my goal always in studying Scripture and in sharing it with you is what do we do with this? How does this apply to me now? I don't want to just fill our heads with knowledge. We want to have wisdom, which is the proper use of knowledge. We want to take this and go, okay, well, what does that mean to me now? What do I do with this? And that's my goal and my hope, and that's what I hope you're thinking of as we're reading God's Word. Be thinking, what does this mean to me? What does this mean in my life now? What is God doing I'm struggling with. This is meant to speak directly to those things. So let's look at it from that perspective. So we're going to unpack it a little bit and see what's being talked about here. So first of all, picking up on sanctification in the Spirit, we left off talking about the foreknowledge of God the Father. We talked about predestination and those challenging issues. We're going to talk about sanctification of the Spirit for the obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus. What is that talking about? Well, there's really... Two types of sanctification referenced here, and I want to talk to you about that, um, or two depths or levels of sanctification that it's really important for us as believers to understand. First of all, he talks about obedience to Christ. What does that mean? And then the second, sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ and the result of that and that's really speaking directly to the sanctification process. What does sanctification mean and what does it do? So the key, the key I think, first of all, in understanding this is let's look at the word sanctification itself. The word sanctification in the original language, in which this particular word occurs ten times in the New Testament, is translated purification, or the state of purity, holiness, or sanctification, as it's translated here, and it really speaks specifically to this your state, your existence, your being, your identity. What you are, your position. You are sanctified, and this is very interesting because I don't know about you, but I'm not quite perfect. Not quite. Actually, I'm quite far from it. Uh, I'm not. I wouldn't, if you know, in the in the sense of the word of being sanctified, meaning being holy and perfect and pure. I don't measure up. I don't think any of us do, and I think we know that if we're honest. And so, what is this talking about? in being positionally pure. that We are in the state of sanctification. Well, let's look at some other verses. There's some examples here. As I mentioned, this particular word is actually mentioned 10 times in the New Testament. In Acts chapter 20, verse 32, it says, So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. And so he talks about the fact that people... The church, those who are as in present tense sanctified, not going to be, not one day when we're in heaven will be perfect, and one day in heaven will be purified, but are currently. Another verse that I think really helps clear it up as well is in First Corinthians six, nine through eleven it says Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, or sodomites, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, extortioners None of these will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus by the Spirit of our God. And so, this word sanctification that is being talked about here, and actually the second version that he mentions in the sprinkling of blood of Christ, which we're going to get into in a minute, um, it's talking about that sanctification that we have as Christians that purely means we are already seen in God's eyes as perfect. We are covered by the blood of Christ. And positionally, we are justified, as these verses say. We are It's as if we have this trial to look forward to. And I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand if you've ever been to a trial and been on the stand. <laughs> I know you have. Being the accused, I mean. Never, right? I don't know. (laughs) Being the one who has this massive accusation hanging over your head and you know you're guilty. You're about to face a judge and a jury and the evidence is clear. You are guilty. You're a murderer. You're a liar. You're a thief. And you know what the sentence for that is. And that's coming. And it's hanging over your head. It's coming just a few weeks from now. And you're spending every moment awake thinking about dreading that moment of judgment that is coming. That's what you were before you were sanctified. That's where we were. And it's just like that. And then the slate is wiped clean. Suddenly you receive a notice that someone else took your payment. Someone else showed up early to the court and said, actually, I'm here to take that punishment for Luke. I'm here to take that that punishment for Adam. And you get this notice saying you don't have to appear anymore. It's all taken care of. Actually, you just need to show up to get your your notice saying that you're the debts paid, that you're good, that you have record of it. So show up on the same date. Now you're looking forward to that date, aren't you? Now you're looking forward to that date where you get that official document that says you're free and clear and you're humbled and you're grateful. And it could be because you've been Redeemed. You've been set free from that judgment. And that's what this type, this first, uh, stage of sanctification, so to speak, is. It is our position in Christ. We are righteous. Not practically yet, but positionally, we are righteous. Before God in judgment, we are righteous. And now we can look forward to the day of judgment and His return, and instead of being afraid, instead of being scared out of our minds, for an Almighty God, we are happy, we are rejoicing, we are grateful because we are sanctified. We are sanctified by the Spirit in Christ's blood. But then he goes on to say for the obedience. He mentions obedience here. And it's interesting because this word sanctified that is used ten times in this form throughout the New Testament comes from the root word hagadzio. And hagadzio is to make holy and to purify and it speaks to the process thereof. And this word is actually used 30 times throughout the New Testament. And we see a lot of verses that speak about being sanctified, being cleansed. And it talks about our lifestyle. It talks about the practical side of sanctification. It talks about how uh, we're being refined in the fire, how we're constantly seeking to be more like Christ. And, you know, one of the greatest examples that I feel um, in the New Testament that I like to bring up that I think really brings clarity to... This process of sanctification that we're in is in Ephesians 5, verse 25. Ephesians five, twenty-five 25-27 is, is some verses we're all familiar with, especially those of us who are married, because it speaks to husbands. And it says, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. That he might present her to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. And the beautiful picture of marriage, the marriage relationship, the family unit that he designed, it's a picture of Christ and the church and our relationship. And this word sanctify in this passage in verse 26 is actually the root of the other word sanctification, speaking of our position And this is really speaking of the process of sanctification. It says that Christ might sanctify and cleanse her, speaking of us, the church, with the washing of water by his word. In other words, we're a work in progress. We need some cleansing. God does not call the perfect. He perfects the called. Amen? He didn't call us because we had it all together. He didn't save us because we didn't need saving. (laughs) It doesn't even make sense. We needed saving. We don't have to get all fixed up and sanctified before we come to Christ. And even throughout our walk, we fall, don't we? We fall again. We struggle. And we fight and we wrestle just like we see Paul wrestling in Romans. He talks about it in Romans 7 and 6, about that striving of the flesh versus the spirit. That's that process of sanctification. As long as there's that struggle, you know that's a good sign. If there's no struggle, there's a problem. But this is speaking of that process of sanctification. Once we're saved and we're now in that position of being sanctified and justified before God, now the Spirit goes to work on the practical side of sanctification where it now shows up in our lives in a very real way. We begin to see Him working in us to will and to do for His good pleasure. That's sanctification. you know. And I love the analogies in Scripture that really make, make this real to me where we see over and over that analogy of sports, and winning and running the race, right? Or we see the analogy of the battle and being well-trained and having the proper equipment and all of those things. And in either case, how many of you played sports in here? I I grew up playing soccer and basketball. Any soccer fans, the real sport, anybody? Yes, thank you. (laughs) That's controversial. But um, I don't know if you've ever been in preparation for a competition or a match or a meet and you have those butterflies in your stomach and you're getting all nervous and you're all worked up about, man, am I going to win? Or are we, do we, does our team have what it takes? I've felt that many times, you know, in preparation for a game. And why do we feel that way? Because we might lose, right? We might fail. Uh, and, and so we feel nervous. We feel uh, all messed up about it. It's the possibility of performing poorly. But you know what? This... What's so cool about sanctification is that we've already won. We've already won the battle. We've already won the race. Now we're just going through the motions in essence. We're living out what we already are. How cool is that? It takes away all that fear, all that struggle, all, that, all of that uneasy feeling of going, man, am I going to make it? We have made it. We have victory. Now let's walk in it, as Paul said over and over again. We now walk in it. Obedience. This word obedience here talks about being attentive and hearkening. Compliance or submission. It's not just going through the motions, in other words. And, you know, how many of you know that God isn't just interested in outward actions? We know that, right? We even know back when he dealt with the Israelites in Isaiah and Jeremiah, we see how he was sick of their uh, sacrifices. He was sick of their, all their ceremonies and feasts and all their things. Why? Why was he so sick of it? It wasn't from the heart, right? They were just doing it. They are going through the motions It meant nothing to them. They just figured they could just go through the motions just to pacify God and then go and live however they wanted. And their heart was completely far from him, is what he said. You do these things, but your heart is far from me. He wants our hearts. And so this obedience, what's interesting about this particular word here, it's not just talking about what we do, but it's talking about why we do it. It's talking about submission. Submission is not obedience. Submission isn't a mere action. Submission is placing yourself under someone's authority. Submission is taking yourself and going, I want to follow this person. I want to obey this person. Not just, fine, I will that's not that's not what this word is here. That is just obedience in our English word, but this word here, it speaks to much more. And that is what God is really looking for, isn't it? He wants our hearts. That's what he's looking at. You know, remember Jesus said in John 14:15, "If you love me, keep my commandments." And he said in just a very simple way there. He said if we do love him, it will show up in our lives. He's talking again about sanctification. And he's also talking about the motiva- motivation for keeping God's commandments. It should be out of love, not out of duty, not because we want to be able to make up for whatever we want to do during the week. It, is, it should be a result of love, which means it never ends, right? It's not something we just do on a particular day or a particular time. It's, it's who we are. And it's a result of what God has done for us. We see the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5 is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. We know the list, right? We memorized it since we were young. All of those things that are the fruit of the Spirit. It says, Against such there is no law. And those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. You see the two levels of sanctification mentioned there. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in it. Hey, if we're Christians, why don't we act like it? What a great idea. (laughs) <laughs> just a thought <laughs> but that's what sanctification is we, it's kind of this reverse situation it's like we get the prize and then we get to run the race it's like we, we have the victory but then we fight the battle you know what let's walk in the victory we have I, you know, I, I remember um, a bit of a milestone in my own sanctification process uh, one time in Mexico on a mission trip I've been there many times, especially growing up. In high school, we would go down uh, to Mexico quite often with um, Calvary Lake Arrowhead, Gary Palmer, our, my youth pastor at the time, and we'd join up with APU. And uh, uh, we also went to a deaf ranch down there and ministered at a ranch for the deaf. Uh, but I've been down there probably at least a dozen times. And, um, you know, it was always a huge wake-up call to me to see the kind of uh, living conditions that people had down there. And compared to how good we have it, it always gave me a healthy dose of reality but i 'll never forget one time when I was down there um, how the Holy Spirit really convicted me in a certain situation through a friend of mine. Uh, he really brought to light how selfish I was, and you know i didn 't realize it i didn 't realize it i didn 't see it, but we were out uh, ministering in a particular village that was really on the outskirts of of a town and when we went down there, what we'd do is we'd do VBS, so we'd put on a vacation Bible school for the kids and we'd bring them all in. It was always a lot of fun. We would, um, you know, put on skits. We would play music. I would always get out the soccer ball and get the men to come out. That was always my secret strategy and it worked every time. Put out a soccer ball and a barbecue and man, get them into church. It was awesome. But, we would always, how many know you can't drink water in Mexico? You don't just drink the tap, right? Montezuma's Revenge. We've heard of that. Uh, you don't have ice. You never ask for ice. Um, but so we always had our stock of of water bottles, fresh clean water, and all that stuff wherever we would go in our vans. And um, I remember when we were out to this one particular village. Uh, man, it was it was a pretty bad place, pretty down. And uh, we had been out in the hot sun with the kids doing all these things in our VBS program. And man, we could see these kids were getting thirsty and and. Uh, a friend of mine was just passing out all of our water bottles to the kids, and we were running out. And uh, none of us in the team had had any water yet. And man, I was getting, I was getting kind of upset with him. I'm like, what are you, what are you doing, man? We, what about us? We don't have any water, you know. And 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 uh, you know, it's so interesting how, looking back, I mean, it seems so clear. And I'm sure you guys, man, what a sinner you're thinking of me. I get it, like you know. But I was seriously like, uh, I was like, man, what, dude, save some for the team here. What are you doing? Uh, you know Why are you giving away all of our water? And I was kind of upset with him. You know, and he just really gently reminded me how, you know, first of all, eventually we'll get back to our base camp. We'll have clean water there. And you know what? We always have clean water. How special is it for these kids? Quite honestly, they're always drinking that dirty water. To give them their own special bottle of clean water it uh, meant so much to them. Uh, and man... I got hit pretty hard. I realized, it just hit me in the gut, lay a little later on as I was walking, I was like, "Dude, I'm just lame. Why did I? You know but I really, it really just woke me up to the reality of my own sinful nature and how my natural tendency is to think of myself first. It's just what I do. It's what we do, isn't it? I'm not the only one, am I? Please tell me I'm not. <laughs> but we do. And you know, but it was a milestone in my life, that little water bottle incident. I never forget it. Because that was one of the times where God's spirit really spoke to me and said and showed me who I was without Christ. And really started working that in me, working that out of me, sanctifying me in that way. And, you know, I went back and apologized uh, to my friend there and and just thanked him for letting God use him in my life. And that's what we're meant to do for each other is to be that gentle reminder of, of, of sanctification. We are supposed to rebuke and exhort one another in love. Uh, that we would grow. And he did that for me. But I'll never forget it. It was long ago, but it was one of those little sanctification milestones in my life. And I think we all have some of those where we kind of get hit between the eyes with our own fleshliness, our own ugly selfishness, and God has to work on it. But that's how he does it. And it's good. It's painful, but it's good. But that's sanctification. So talking a little bit, I want to move on here to... This phrase where Peter talks about the sprinkling of the blood of Christ. What is that about? What is he talking about? Sounds kind of weird at first. It's like, sprinkling of the blood of Christ. What is he, what is he saying here? I mean, we kind of superficially glance over and say, okay, well, we're washed in the blood and, and, and all that. But what is it, what does that mean? That, um, you know, in this context, when he's talking to those who are saved, uh, that the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience and for obedience and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. As he's speaking again to who they are. Um, well, this, I think, is a clear reference, first of all, uh, to the power of, of Christ's sacrifice for, for us, but also to fulfillment of prophecy and to how the new covenant in Christ is truly a complete fulfillment of the old covenant. And we get a really good picture of that in Hebrews 9. And if you guys want to follow along with, with me, feel free to turn there to Hebrews 9.19. I encourage you to study Hebrews because Hebrews is focused on the Jews. It is written to the Jews and helping them understand Jesus from their perspective, that he did come to fulfill the old covenant, not to abolish it. He fulfilled it. He came to set us free from the law. And so he had to explain that in more detail there. So Hebrews is a good book to reference things like Old Testament prophecy and what is being said here. How does it relate? But Hebrews 9, 19, Hebrews 9, verse 19 says, For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people, according to the law, again, we're taking a bit of an excerpt here for time's sake. As I said in the beginning, please take the time, read the chapter, read, the, read more of the context because it just gets better. And there's just more. But I want to focus on the key point here. It says, When Moses had spoken every precept to all the people, speaking of the laws from God. And according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats. So again, and under the Old Covenant, we remember that it was animals that were sacrificed for sin, right? They didn't have Jesus yet. So animals were sacrificed without the shedding of blood. As we'll see in here, there is no remission of sin. So the took the blood of the calves and the goats, which were sacrificed to the Lord, with water, scarlet wool, and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book Itself, which was the book of the law and all the people saying this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you speaking of this old covenant then likewise he sprinkled the blood on both the tabernacle and all the vessels of ministry basically consecrating those things it was a symbol of purification for all of those things under the old covenant so according to the law almost all things are purified with blood and without the shedding of blood there is no remission of sin so blood was used to cleanse or purify something under the Old Covenant, which we know from Hebrews is a mere shadow of things to come in Christ. So when he speaks of this sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, what he's saying is Jesus' blood, Jesus' sacrifice, not literally, obviously, but Jesus' sacrifice for us, the shedding of his blood, was that which purifies us completely, once and for all. It was the fulfillment of this Old Covenant, these old laws and traditions that they had to go through, which really were just to point to the ultimate fulfillment that they had to look forward to in Christ. So the sprinkling of the blood that Peter briefly uh, references here, he's, he's tying in the fact that Jesus came to fulfill all the law and the prophets. He's tying in the fact that there's no other that can purify and cleanse us and put us in that sanctified state. What's also interesting in tying in from this Hebrews passage um, it just there's so many neat symbolisms throughout Scripture, uh, such as the scarlet wool. In Isaiah, it gives us some understanding of this scarlet wool that they had to use. It says in Isaiah 1:18, "Come now and let us reason together," says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. And that stained wool represents how sin permanently stains us, it permanently ruins us. Sin is destructive, and as we read in the New Testament. Sin, ultimately, when it has brought forth, results in what? Death, right? It's a pretty terminal disease. But, it says, though it is stained as scarlet, it will be white as wool. And he's talking about how Christ alone, this was a prophecy, about what the sprinkling of Christ's blood would do for us. And then hyssop, we see how they used hyssop. The hyssop plant is very interesting. A hyssop is used widely today it's a perennial plant that's native to the Mediterranean region, and during the time of the Romans, uh, it was very popular. Which is this era, um, uh, during Jesus's time, but is also used throughout Hebrew culture. Uh, it was actually used as a for medicinal purposes against the plague. It was a disin- it's a disinfectant for in treatment for minor infections and wounds. Um, it's held in high regard and is a, so it has been associated with purification. For a very long time. Just to give you a little snapshot, I was going to put up a PowerPoint, but um, uh, it grows to be about two feet high. It has kind of a hairy stems on it. It can grow these uh, little flowers on it, uh, purple, blue, or white flowers. And it's just like a little uh, uh, bush uh, is what the hyssop is. It's not like a tree. Uh, It's actually like a a bush. But what's interesting is the essential oils that are extracted today uh, from hyssop, we now know, um, is one of the most strongest antiviral essential oils out there because it contains almost every chemical compound found in most other essential oils. And so it is highly regarded even today for purification, being antiviral, um, pretty amazing. And how way back then, you know, thousands of years ago, they were using it for purification. How amazing our God is that he directed them in that way. Uh, The plant itself had built-in medicinal purposes that we now know with modern science, but back then they knew it. How amazing is that? But all of this was a symbol, and there is so much more. I wish I had time to go through it all, but all of this is a symbol pointing to Christ, which completed the whole work, which got it done, which makes us truly sanctified, as we talked about positionally, and then the Spirit goes to work in a practically living it out in our lives. And remember the Passover, uh, how Jesus was a fulfillment of the Passover, and we don't have time to get into all that, but he was that Passover lamb. So he goes on in speaking to them, being sanctified for the obedience of Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you. So Peter, with all of this deep truth and identifying who they are, and identifying what the life of a believer looks like starts really with a blessing. He says, Grace and peace to you. Peace to you as His church, as His chosen ones, as the pilgrims, as the sanctified ones. Peace and grace to you. This word grace speaks of graciousness, it speaks of divine benefit and favor, and also the influence upon the heart. It's just a blessing of, of God's graciousness and peace. You know, we find throughout Scripture, being very closely associated, grace and peace often go together. And there's two kinds of peace that are talked about in the New Testament that we need to take note of. There's peace with God and peace from God. And through Christ, we have peace with God, meaning we're saved. And before we're saved, and Romans 8 talks a lot how we're at enmity with God when we're carnally minded. Before Christ, we're at odds with God. But now, through Christ, we have peace with God. We're at peace with Him. So grace and peace. But also, we have the peace of God. Jesus said he came to bring us peace, didn't he? And he's the Prince of Peace. That we have peace here and now, even in this life, even in the midst of all that's going on. It's peace despite the circumstances, not because of them, right? So grace and peace, the kind of peace truly only Jesus can give. Reading on, we can, we can get a lot more insight into what Peter is so passionate about here Verse 3 it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. So let's go, go back and, and unpack these ones a little bit. Let's talk a little more in depth about verses uh, 3 and 4. So blessed be the God um, you know, this word blessed is used throughout scripture in different contexts in the English language. And I always like to uh, point out what it means in, in this particular context. Uh, this word blessed actually isn't like what we would say, um, I pray that you are blessed. I pray that God blesses you. And usually we're speaking of uh, his favor almost materially uh, in many ways or receiving something from God. This word blessed when it's speaking to God, saying blessed be God, it's actually a term of adoration and reverence. He's saying, may God be greatly honored and adored, is what is being said there in this particular word. And if you actually look again consistently, I wish I had time to go through all these things. It's so much fun to see how the consistency of scripture ties together so well. But you'll see in many cases where Peter and Paul uh, use this phrase, blessed be God the Father, blessed be the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's using the same Greek word that is speaking of adoration and reverence. Not speaking of blessings in the sense that we use the word many times. And so making that distinction, he's saying, Blessed be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. and that He's basically encouraging them, May he be honored, may he be reverenced and adored. According to his abundant mercy, he has begotten us again to a living hope. Blessed be the God and Father. So, again, I don't want to skip over anything. Why does he call him the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ? That's important. He doesn't just call him the Father. He calls him the God and Father. Well, he's speaking, first of all, as God. He's referencing Jesus as a man. He's confirming, in fact, that Peter, having walked with Christ for three years, that Jesus came as a man. He was fully man. He came to be among us. He came as a man, not, uh, not um, as a spirit or, or sort of partially. He truly came as a man. He, he was well acquainted with our pain and our sorrow and our grief. He is well acquainted with the things that we go through as a human. So he says the God and Father, Father reverencing Jesus as the Son of God uh, and his Godhood as equal with God. So we see Jesus' title being expanded in here. Who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope. His mercy, his compassion. This word mercy is interesting because when it's translated in English, um, the history of this word is very interesting. It comes from the Anglo-French word Merci and the Latin word Merced. Uh, it means price paid or wages, which is interesting. Uh, I didn't know that. Uh, but looking at the history of this English word that we use, that's literally what it means. It means the price, price paid or wages. And how interesting that in the biblical context, it could be a more perfect description of what mercy is for us. The price is paid. It's not that we're just not getting what we deserve. It's it's been satisfied. It's been paid. For the wages of sin is death. Amen? But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Jesus paid the price. Jesus took the wages of sin for us. What good news. What good news. Romans 6.23 talks about that. He received our wages. He received and we received his reward. What a bad deal for him. <laughs> we, we certainly got the better end of that deal. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the sacrifice, the redeemer for our sin. So he hath begotten us again. He hath begotten us again into a living hope. Um, remember Nicodemus. You guys remember Nicodemus, right? He was a Pharisee in that day when Jesus walked the earth. Nicodemus and Jesus had a good conversation about this, being born again. And we can find that in John chapter 3. But he had a very hard time understanding what this meant. And it says, we are begotten again. In other words, we are born again. And Jesus said in John chapter 3, verse 3, Most assuredly I say to you, he's speaking to Nicodemus at the time, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So obviously, it's pretty important. It was pretty important to Nicodemus to understand what this meant. But it's pretty important to us as well, isn't it? What does it mean? To, if we can't see the kingdom of God without being born again, we should probably know what that means. We want to make sure that we are. And this speaks of, obviously, salvation and the process thereof. But we are first born in sin and in the flesh. And we know this. And we could go through a lot of verses or talk about how since Adam, Adam was the firstborn of, of really the sinful nature and we've inherited that from, from him. And Jesus now is the firstborn of those who are of the resurrection and the life. In him, following his lineage, we have eternal life. We have sanctification. We have justification. And so Jesus is talked about as the firstborn in that. Romans 6, Galatians 2, Colossians 3, 1 Corinthians 6, they all talk about this. Again, jot those down, do, do some of your homework here. But by identifying in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we are born again. Galatians 2.20 is a common one that I want to call to your remembrance. It says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live, I live in the, in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Amen. Amen. That's what it means to be born again. We're identifying with his death, his burial, and his resurrection. We're, in essence, dying to the flesh and, and being raised to new life, being born again in the spirit to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There it is right there. And we see it throughout scripture. It's to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You know, Paul was on the same page and in uh, Titus 1.1. It says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God our Savior and the Lord Jesus Christ, our hope. So, we're, he's a living hope. This hope, in Hebrews 6.19, we we're told, is an anchor for our soul. Both sure and steadfast, which enters the presence behind the veil. In Hebrews 6.20, where the forerunner has entered before us, even Jesus. So, hope throughout the New Testament is regularly accompanied by the words joy and peace. And I want to encourage you to do that study as well. But the hope we have in Christ always results in these two things, joy and peace. And it's interesting how um, you'll find them together throughout the New Testament. But it's also something to note that if we have this hope in Christ, these two characteristics should be very apparent as Christians. You know, uh, I know we've talked before about the gloomy Christian. and We've talked before about... Uh, just the overly somber, uh, sort of depressed fasting. It's kind of like what Jesus talked about, those Pharisees in his day when they would fast and they would get all sad and all pious so people would notice how holy they were and people would ask, you know, um, if we're all down in the dumps and a stick in the mud, why would the world want what we have? You know, the hope that we have should make us incredibly joyful. You know, and honestly, I think, in studying and learning what God has taught us, uh, Mara and I, about parenting, I think one of the greatest things that we can have in passing on our, our Christian heritage to our children is them seeing our joy. If we're not joyful, and my kids are joyful by, by nature, aren't they? They, they, they? They're bouncing off the walls, they love to have fun. And man, if you're always a bummed out Christian, how does that look to your children? I think one of the best things you can do for your kids is enjoy the Lord Jesus Christ and enjoy them. And man, you'll be irresistible. It'll be irresistible to them. So have that joy. And that joy is a result of the hope. You can't just have the joy for joy's sake. It's anchored in that hope. That hope in Christ that we have that cannot be taken from us. That living hope. That hope is literally Christ itself. He is that living hope. having trouble with the... Like here. So 1 Peter 1 4, this hope, he goes on to talk about it, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that which does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. An inheritance, first of all, what do you think of when you think of inheritance? Well, you think of a family, right? We're part of a family. When we become Christ, when we become born again, we're born into something. We're born into Christ's family, we become co-heirs with Christ. He has begotten us again to this living hope. And so, being co-heirs with Christ, in Romans 8, 15-17, it says, For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom you cry out, Abba, Father. So now we're a part of a new family. That's what we're born into. We die to sin, we die to that old life, and we're born into The family of God were now co-heirs with Christ. And the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit in Romans 8.16 that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. So this eternal possession for those who have received salvation from the consequences of sin, it's something that will never fade away. It will never decay. It's eternal. And as we're told right here... It's reserved in heaven for you. It's guarded by God himself. It's not something we have to preserve, not something that we have to strive for and make happen. It's guarded by God himself. You know, and that's where, as we read in, in Luke, where Jesus talks about how we should store up treasures in heaven. Amen? Where moth and rust doesn't corrupt, where thieves don't break in and steal. Um, you know, uh, again, this was one of those things where God is, I, I remember a milestone in my life where God spoke to me about the value of storing up heavenly treasures. Um, when, uh, I was spending the night at a friend's house quite a while ago. Um, people in here know exactly what I'm talking about. And the house caught fire back in 2001. Remember very clearly. Um, sleeping down in the basement, and then I hear somebody yelling, fire, fire, upstairs, and we run out, and the whole kind of upper story burned. And what was really especially tragic about the situation is my good friend had saved up a bunch of stuff for his wedding in his room. He was getting married soon, and he had just everything for his wedding and for their new life together all in his room. And it all went up in flames. In a matter of hours, it was all gone. And it was just heartbreaking, but it was a real eye-opener to how quickly things of this earth can be taken from us. It really hit me hard to realize, you know what, there's no security here. You know, we make our plans, yes. We do our best, yes. We try and provide and plan for the future, for ourselves, for our families, and we have to do those things. But if we hope in those things, oh, not good, because in an instant it can be taken, and, I, and I'll never forget that because it was something where God used that in my life as, as well. That's one of those other milestones where I look back and I go, God taught me something through that, to not place my hope in those things, to not let those things move me and put all my trust in those things, in the things of this earth, but place my hope elsewhere and trust God with the rest. You know, And um, that was something that, uh, that God made clear to me through that situation, and it was tough. But what's exciting is this inheritance that we have isn't something that's up to us. It's not up to us to protect. Like that stuff that was lost in that fire. Um, you know, we tried to save it, tried to put the fire out, we tried to, you know, rummage through the ashes to find something. Nothing we could do to, to really save that situation. You know, how, how scary it would be if we had to, we had to secure our own eternal inheritance. That would be scary. But you know what? It's preserved in heaven for us we got something to look forward to, and it cannot be touched by anything or anyone of this world. In 1 Peter 1.5, reading on, You who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. You know, remember we were talking about the Armenian doctrine and how it is so dependent on the person. And again, Peter goes on to destroy that concept because over and over again he makes clear Our salvation is completely in the hands of our Creator. It's completely in the hands of an almighty, all-powerful God. And that's pretty secure. We can rest in that. You know, there's a cool church sign I saw once. It says, come work for the Lord. The work is hard, the hours are long, the pay is low, but the retirement benefits are out of this world. So, pretty awesome. With that, we are out of time. Almost got through everything this time. So much more good stuff to talk about in these next verses. But I think you've got enough to think about and meditate on today. God's word is good and faithful. I encourage you to read through the rest of the chapter and the rest of the book. Um, We have so much to hope in and be thankful for. Uh, As Paul said, when he talked about his many trials, which were far worse than ours, none of these things moved me. And we can say the same if our hope is properly anchored in Christ and we know where the security of our salvation lies. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word this morning and for the things you have spoken to us and encouraged us in. I thank you for how you sanctify us. I thank you that the price is paid. Lord, that you took our wages and we took your reward. Lord, you've done so much. And I pray that you continue, as your word says, that you continue the work that you've begun to its completion until the day you return. And Lord, we look forward to that day with great expectation. May it be today. But Lord, help us to live as faithful stewards of yours until that day does come. And Lord, we ask your blessing on this day as we go forth. May we meditate on your word and may we live it. In Jesus' name, amen.